0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. The HBO series Chernobyl, about the nuclear accident in the Soviet Union in 1986, is now the top-rated show of all time on the IMDb and has been lavished with praise. No piece of dramatised non-fiction has ever felt this authentic, gushed the TV critic of the Irish Independent. But according to nuclear expert and Quillette contributor Michael Schellenberger, Chernobyl plays fast and loose with the facts, even by the standards of the docudrama genre. The series gives the impression that tens of thousands of people died, radiation poisoning is contagious, and the pregnant wife of a firefighter only survived exposure to her infected husband because her unborn baby absorbed the radiation, acting as her human shield. None of these things are true. I spoke to Michael, a Time magazine hero of the environment, for the Quillette podcast. Michael, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to Quillette. Um, I read your piece in Forbes about Chernobyl, and I think it's uh, fair to say that you weren't a huge fan of the series. Do you want to tell us what you didn't like about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of problems with the show. I mean, the first problem with it is that they claim... That it's based on what actually happened. In fact, the creators went to great lengths to emphasize how true they were being to the event itself. And I think of all the most of all the outrageous things about the the show, the most outrageous is the is the repetition of what is really a very old anti nuclear talking point, which is that when nuclear plants have a meltdown, when the fuel melts that it is the same as a nuclear bomb going off. And this is a theme they hit repeatedly through the various episodes. It's something that I believed as a child. Uh, It's something that polling shows at least a third of the public believes consciously, if not unconsciously. And it's just absolutely nuts. It's, It's completely untrue. It's never been true. There's no possibility of it occurring. It's physically impossible and i think it's quite understandably scary for people to imagine that they have nuclear bombs ready to go off near them that could have really really what is an apocalyptic effect it's not just that they say that chernobyl becomes a nuclear bomb explodes like a nuclear bomb they then exaggerate the size of nuclear bombs to suggest that it would basically eviscerate everybody within you know, hundreds of kilometres. So it's just a completely hysterical, over-the-top TV show. If they had given it a different name, if they had maybe said it wasn't nuclear or something else, they could have done it as sci-fi, but instead they quite pompously and pretentiously suggested that it was based on reality.
1: Specifically, what were the misleading claims and what were the misleading scenes in the series?
2: I think other than saying that nuclear plants go off like a bomb, the other really crazy stuff was they suggested that radiation was contagious. They um, they had these scenes where basically I mean, the most over the top part was the suggestion that a woman's baby was uh, that had absorbed radiation from its father through the mother and ended up absorb they, they literally said the baby absorbed the radiation and protected you from it uh, because the mother had been sitting at the bedside of her husband. Well, this is complete fabrication. It's just uh, absolutely ridiculous. That's not how radiation works. If you're putting out a fire like they did at Chernobyl, there is some chance that you'll get radioactive particles on you, like just materials from the building or from the fuel itself. On you and you just have to dispose of the clothing and take a shower and that's sufficient to remove the particles this idea that you sort of become a zombie and they literally sort of show the one of the firefighters becoming a kind of lizard man and they suggest it's from the radiation much of the horribleness of some of the ways the firefighters died was just through bone marrow transplants and the rejection of bone marrow transplants but I think the overall picture you get is of just huge numbers of deaths. And that's the most surprising thing about it is that at the, the, the fire that they put out killed 28 firefighters. They ended up dying a few weeks later of acute radiation syndrome. About three people died the night of the accident. So you have 31 people. And then after that, you have to remember, this is one of the most closely studied industrial accidents ever. I mean, huge numbers of scientists from around the world, independent studies overseen by the United Nations World Health Organization, and what they find is that the only other impact of Chernobyl was an increase in thyroid cancer, and so they estimate somewhere around 16,000 thyroid cancers, of which the mortality rate is 1%. So in addition to those 31 deaths the night of the event, there is estimated that there will be up to 160 premature deaths from thyroid cancer. That's it. There's no birth defects, no increases in other cancers. Even the people they show in the film who clean up the accident, they they call them liquidators, um, people that go in and remove the rubble, no increase in cancers evident among any of them. So in some ways what Chernobyl shows is that the worst nuclear accident conceivable had remarkably few public health impacts compared to, say, the normal operation of fossil fuel power plants.
1: Just to stay on the woman who supposedly managed to escape death herself because her baby absorbed the radiation emanating from her dying firefighter husband, that episode was referred to in a piece in The New Yorker about chernobyl uh, the miniseries and in that piece there were numerous references to a nobel prize-winning russian language writer won the nobel prize for literature in 2015 who supposedly interviewed that woman and talked to her about her shakespearean fate uh, are you saying that that just didn't happen
2: well we have no idea <laughs> i mean that's what's sort of crazy about it um I mean, I have no doubt that the that the book, it's called Voices of Chernobyl, yeah. is a very fine book. But we have that that's not the same as a major study done by the world's leading radiation and public health experts. Um, moreover, like literally the physical dynamic of a baby supposedly absorbing radiation from her father at a bedside in a hospital. That is physically impossible. That's just something that we know did not happen. Um, we know it did not happen from the doctors who were there and who testified that it did not happen. Uh, you know, was there even a woman with a was there even a pregnant woman with a baby? We don't know. Did she even lose her baby? We don't know. Did if she lost her baby, do we know how the baby died? We don't. So I was reluctant to actually write this piece because there's a way in which when you argue with urban myths. you you find it's sort of an endless task, and there's so many of them, you know, urban myth upon urban myth. There's another one that they show people on a bridge, and the show claims there's widespread belief that everybody who was on this bridge who were looking at the Chernobyl fire, that they all died. Well, there's just no evidence for any of that. I mean, like, they're literally repeating gossip and rumor And, you know, one of the things I have to say that really drives me crazy, and it was one of the reactions I got to the film, was really no respect for different kinds of evidence. And so people would say things to me like they'd say, well, you're just repeating what the Soviet authorities said. That's just not true. I mean, there was so much research done by international teams, scientists who are from some of the most prestigious universities in the world, and to sort of put that evidence on the same level as basically a fiction writer describing a woman's story. I mean, you know, just to be able to even identify how that baby died, you would have had to do an autopsy. There would have had to been a record. there would that would that would have made it into the documentation that was going on and overseen by some of the world's best cancer doctors, including a doctor that, I did a follow up piece with a UCLA doctor who was brought in by Gorbachev to help oversee the response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it sort of drives me to distraction. The, the amount of urban myths that get repeated, I think, quite uncritically by by people, many of whom I think are not sort of anti-nuclear people, but just ones that that actually have come to trust HBO <laughs> you know, I mean, I think I mean I think there's a way in which we love hBO so much that we sort of assume that they got it right, even when you have some of the world's top experts saying they got it wrong, but
1: isn't it conventional to extend to filmmakers, television writers a certain artistic license when telling stories supposedly based on real events. You know, it's a disaster movie. No one expects it to be completely faithful to the facts. I mean, Apollo 13, not everything in Apollo 13 happened in exactly the way it happens in the movie. But, you know, we can live with that because we want to be entertained. So we're prepared to give the filmmakers some license. Why is it so important, do you think, in this case, that we shouldn't extend that license to the makers of Chernobyl.
2: Well, I think it's okay to extend the license. I mean, you have to remember the creators of this show were the ones who set the bar so high. They said it was based. They said it was a faithful representation. They actually did a podcast where they supposedly helped viewers distinguish between things that they embellished a little bit and things as they happened. And at the end of the show, they showed a bunch of. Slides, you know, like the way they do at the end of movies saying kind of here's what happened afterwards or this person went on and did this or that. They did that. So so the the notion that we were supposed to accept the depiction of events as they depicted it as reality was actually promoted by the creators of the show. So one example is, of course, the helicopter just hits a chain that should not have been dangling from a nearby crane, had nothing to do with the radiation. You know, another one, and this is something that I thought was quite fascinating just from a scientific perspective, is that um, that many of the firefighters um, would have survived the high levels of radiation exposure. They could still have had their lives shortened. It certainly wouldn't have been, you know, a healthy event. But they may have survived if they hadn't also suffered severe burns, and so I think it's a very interesting point, which is that it was the combination of the burns and the radiation that really affected people, because especially when your skin is broken and the radiation is entering that way as well through the fire, your body's just fighting off two severe traumas. You know, I I thought that was something that, that was very interesting because, of course, you know, when firefighters get killed in fires, it's obviously a tragedy, but it's not worthy of an HBO documentary. The whole idea behind the HBO documentary is that radiation is this super potent hazard or toxin that it turns people into lizards, that it kills babies. You know, this is really the other trope that's been around for radiation since the 50s. I mean, we had... Really, at a time when the country is very afraid of nuclear weapons in the 50s, we saw Hollywood making movie after movie about about monsters created by radiation that then a team of scientists, you know, and military men would kill. And Susan Sontag, the literary critic, you know, argued that these films where we depict monsters made from radiation and then we kill the monsters was really a, a psychological um, strategy that we had unconsciously to sort of deal with the trauma of this just terrifying new weapon. And I think that's what's what's really going on in Chernobyl. I think what it shows is that there's still this underlying fear of nuclear weapons that we project or we displace onto nuclear power plants. And I think it's very dangerous when we're allowing our unconscious to drive how we think about things. Better to have those those conversations and that thinking happen in our conscious mind yeah, you know, as we know from the psychologists, when we allow these unconscious fears to drive us, that we can end up behaving in very self-destructive ways.
1: And, and why do you think that's um, a particular danger with respect to nuclear power? Do you think that it was essentially irresponsible of HBO to spread fear about nuclear power given how beneficial nuclear power could be as an alternative to fossil fuels or renewables?
2: Yeah, I mean, here you are at this moment when the majority of climate scientists, the IPCC, who are now kind of coming out and saying, look, we really we need nuclear power. I mean, even if you're not that worried about climate change, you still have seven million deaths a year from conventional air pollution. Nuclear is, despite the fears we have, all the projections onto it about weapons, it is actually the safest way to make reliable electricity because it does not produce deadly air pollution. And so here at a moment when really, you know, and even some um, of the bigger anti-nuclear groups are acknowledging the need for some role for nuclear. So at this this moment, you have really the premier television channel in the world putting out uh, a huge, incredibly well-financed miniseries, you know, suggesting that nuclear power plants go off like nuclear bombs and that radiation is a super potent toxin. And I have to say I found I found the public relations around the show it wasn't just that they were claiming that it was it was realistic and based on facts you also had the creator going around saying oh no I'm I'm pro nuclear and this movie is not anti nuclear and you know the industry the nuclear industry which basically suffers a form of battered wife syndrome after 60 years of being described as baby killers to the public yeah, you know, the nuclear industry even kind of comes out and goes, "Yes, it's a good warning of the dangers." And it's like, because they're sort of so culturally tone deaf, it, they, I think they didn't realize just how terrifying that show is for for ordinary people. I mean, I just kept open a a window on my on my Twitter uh, on my TweetDeck software to just to just look at sort of the average person's reaction. And they were absolutely terrified of nuclear energy. I think that the, the idea that people saw it and, and thought to themselves, gosh, it's a great case for better government regulation. And certainly there were a number of conservatives and some of my libertarian friends which were like, it's an indictment of the Soviet Union. you know. But it turns out that even that was inaccurate and over the top. I mean they weren't taking people out and shooting them in the 1980s, that's something that they did in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. And I'm not I'm certainly not apologizing for the repression that existed in the Soviet Union. I think in many ways it really was an evil empire. But the, the kind of cartoon characters they presented, I mean, it was always clear who was a good guy and a bad guy in that show and that there was this sort of evil technology Um, You know, perpetrated by, and here you kind of get into your classic, you know, Greek, you know, mythology warning against human hubris. Um, I have to say I found the show actually quite boring artistically that I think matched in kind of cartoon fashion the really crude, simplistic and and just plain wrong depiction of nuclear and radiation.
1: One argument you could make against the show is that it's irresponsible at this particular cultural moment to produce something likely to terrify people about the dangers of nuclear power, given the political pressure, the mounting political pressure Western governments are coming under to do something about what was called climate change, but is now called the climate emergency. Mounting pressure, for instance, to reduce carbon emissions to zero by 2050, or even uh, 2025, if you listen to the demands of some of the Extinction Rebellion protesters. Um, And it's going to be very difficult to meet those targets. Targets and to allay the uh, anxieties of those protesters, um, if nuclear can't be part of the overall response, um, you know. Uh, and you did write something in the in Forbes more recently about the threat posed by wind turbines, in particular, to various species, including bats. Um, And you pointed out the irony of these extinction rebellion protesters who are purportedly concerned about the sixth mass extinction, arguing against nuclear and for renewables, given that actually wind power poses a real threat to a number of species.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I made this point in an earlier piece for Quillette, which is that the reason that nuclear energy is so safe is the exact same reason that its impact on the natural environment is so low and that's what that's 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 because of the energy density of the fuel and this is a bit of sort of energy jargon although not much there's not a whole lot of physics you need to understand to understand that You know, a Coke cans worth of uranium is enough to provide me with all the energy I would ever need in my entire life. To produce the same amount of electricity from a wind farm as from a nuclear plant, you need 400 times more land. Um, Same thing with solar. And the reason is because solar and wind are energy dilute. You You know, if you stand right next to a nuclear reactor, you will die because the amount of energy coming out of it is so intense. If you stand in the sunlight and, or the wind, obviously, it's very low levels of energy. So that intense level of energy is actually really positive from both a public health and, and an environmental perspective, because it means that there's just less natural resource being used from an environmental perspective and then from a public health perspective. What's really damaging, like especially, you know, when you visit a place like Delhi, India or Beijing, is that the air is thick with particulate matter and particulate matter is just the is just the material from wood and dung and coal that is in the air that you're breathing. And in the worst nuclear accident, because in the normal operation of a nuclear plant, there's no air pollution. But in the worst nuclear accident, a tiny amount of radioactive particulate matter can escape. It's actually quite heavy. It doesn't travel very far. It falls. So the the reason that nuclear is so much safer from a public health perspective is that it just produces so much less particulate matter than conventional forms of energy. And this is just one of the weird twists of history that the safest and environmentally best forms of, of electricity production is also the one that is opposed by most environmentalists, the vast majority of whom, as I pointed out in my piece, are just much more concerned about moralizing as part of an apocalyptic religious movement than they are about actually protecting the natural environment.
1: Do you see any signs that the religious movement you've just described is merging with the social justice? quasi-religious crusade. Um, It has a kind of strong anti-capitalist component, which is very much in the forefront of the Extinction Rebellion protest. And someone like Greta Thunberg uh, very much links the looming environmental catastrophe to various forms of social injustice as well. Uh, And there have been various attempts to link the sins of the energy industry to the denial of rights to indigenous people and so forth. Do you see these two movements coming together or have they always been kind of fairly intertwined?
2: I think they've always been fairly intertwined. Um, You know, I mean, I think you have to understand certainly both of those movements as representing a kind of religious impulse these are they're predictable in the sense that i think both have totalitarian elements in them by which i mean they're about a radical reshaping of society my view is look you know if you want to stop if you want to save the world from climate change and reduce humankind's negative impact you just use nuclear power plants instead of fossil fuels and burning biomass that alone is going to just have a huge impact reducing air and water pollution, reducing humankind's use of, of you know land area. But for the Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, the kind of radical environmental movement, no, no, it's got everybody has to stop flying in airplanes, they have to stop driving in cars, they have to stop eating meat. It's really a set of, of ways of controlling people's lives that are quite reminiscent of the demands that the church used to make on people. And so, with the decline of traditional religions, really ever since the 19th century, and this was something that Friedrich Nietzsche and and Sigmund Freud and others all saw coming. Right? They said, well, if, you know, humans need religion. They need to. They need an external authority in which to ground their morality. And if the external authority disappears, then people are going to invent new gods, and they're going to invent new moralities. And at first that was most famously represented by communism and fascism, the, what's happened is that as communism lost credibility, and it was losing credibility really almost immediately, certainly by the 30s and 40s under Stalin's purges, but by the time you get to the 50s and 60s, it was clear that people living in capitalist societies were just becoming a lot richer than people living in socialist ones. And so if the big problem with capitalism is that it created a miseration – And inequality, why was it that there was so much wealth and actually declining inequality in places like the U.S. and Western Europe? So that then gave rise to what we now call environmentalism. Um, You know, the earlier forms of natural environmental conservation tended to be, you know, pretty um, pro-nuclear. They tended to be pro-technology, pro-fertilizer, pro-industrial agriculture. The newer forms of environmentalism were really about imposing a more primitive mode of production, a return to agricultural life. I wrote a piece about how, everything think it was titled something like, You know, the reason renewables can't power modern civilization is because they were never meant to. They were meant to return societies back to an agricultural age. That's what the Extinction Rebellion protesters and Greta Thunberg want. In terms of a new morality, I think the social justice warriors are creating a new morality that basically just reverses an older racist colonial morality. So it ends up rejecting the – I think the the correct morality of Dr. Martin Luther King, which is that all humans are created equal and substituting it for this idea that people that were traditionally oppressed are now good and that people who look like the people who were the traditional oppressors are now bad. So pretty simplistic um, moralities that I think have gained a huge amount of power in a society where most of their adherents no longer believe in traditional gods or traditional religions.
1: Do you Finally, uh, Michael, do, do you have any um, theories about why it is that there is so much animosity swirling around and really has been since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution towards industrialization towards technology. I mean, there's an interesting debate currently unfolding in the UK about the debt the UK owes to the planet and the global south in particular, in virtue of having been the first country to industrialize, having invented the industrial revolution. They talk about carbon debt as though the um, soot Coming out of the chimneys of the dark satanic mills in the nineteenth century, is still polluting the atmosphere, and we owe the world a debt to try and depollute it. Uh, it's a bit like reparations, but a kind of environmental reparations. Um, but what what accounts for this ongoing, perennial hostility towards what? you know, to ordinary folks just looks like an unending bounty of material wealth. You know, we live so much healthier, richer, longer, more comfortable lives now than our ancestors did in the pre-industrial era. Um, And yet people seem to yearn for a return to the 18th century when, as one historian put it, human beings were in pain. And this is in England, 50% of the time. Why is it, do you think, that people yearn for a pre-industrial romantic age in which we were in pain, children died in childbirth, we were lucky to live beyond the age of 40, we were mainly cold, hungry, subject to all kinds of diseases, life was nasty, brutal and short. Why did people romanticize it? Why did people want to go back? I can't understand it.
2: Yeah. Well, I think there's a bunch of different motivations, obviously. It's such a strong phenomenon that it has to have multiple causes. I mean, I think first among them is that it's just that, you know, the the thing about being in a rich modern society is that life is kind of boring. You know, there's it's just not there isn't a struggle for survival. So there's a huge question of meaning. And of course, that's deepened by the fact that increasingly few of us believe in a traditional God. So you see this conversation taking place. Um, in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the Colette writing, certainly with the work of Jordan Peterson and, and others, sort of saying, you know, we're all struggling to find meaning and purpose in a world where we don't, you know, even have to work to survive anymore. We all need to feel like heroes in our own mind. And so, what's a heroic struggle? Um, and what what is a what does it mean to become a hero in a society where so much of our sort of basic sustenance of life is already provided for us? So I think that until we until we sort of provide better answers for that, I think you're going to continue to have demands for for radical change. Um, I think it's obvious that the people demanding these radical changes, a return to agrarian or primitive life, are absolutely not interested in engaging in farm work. <laughs> <laughs> farm work is terrible if you've ever done it before. Nobody wants to do it. I've, I actually knew some – uh, recent graduates of UC Santa Cruz, I mean UC uh, Berkeley, which is, uh, you know, very good academic institution, you know, read Michael Pollan and think that they wanted to go and be organic farmers Well, they spent, you know, one summer doing organic farming and never wanted to look back. In fact, they became critics of the romantic view of agriculture, you know, and I think the other thing is just, there's a sort of, you know, a quite understandable desire for power as well. Um, you know, people want to feel powerful. I, I think it's interesting to me, and I was working on a piece for Colette about it. I haven't—I don't think I quite have it yet. But, but it's interesting to me that so many of the stories of the Extinction Rebellion founders, as well as the story of Greta Thunberg, is a story of having been really depressed, um, and then, and basically coming out of the depression using a kind of anger to come out of depression. Uh, and, and the anger is a sort of expressed socially. So it's sort of getting, so there's this idea and it's in Nietzsche and others, which is basically that depression is the experience of powerlessness and that, and that when you feel powerful, you feel happy when you feel powerless, you feel bad. And I think we see that in the stories of these, of the radical environmentalists, there's people that are are quite depressed for a variety of reasons, a lot of reasons that one could be depressed. Um. And, and then so they sort of tell these stories that are exciting about the end of the world. It's all going to end in 12 years. And it gives them sort of social recognition. They get in the newspapers. They they receive lots of people telling them how special and wonderful their, their voice is. And I think it's a way for them to overcome their their depression. We saw it in a really fine movie that came out, I think it was a couple of years ago, called First Reformed. About a, it was about an environmental activist, very similar to the one depicted, or very similar to the ones in in Extinction Rebellion, where his concern is not just climate change but also species extinctions. And without spoiling the movie, basically his, his depression is contagious, and it's um, embraced, and this 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 really dark worldview is embraced by a, a local um, a church minister and without spoiling it i think it's one i think it's a really brilliant treatment of and it really asks the question of is what we call radical environmentalism a kind of manifestation of depression at a society wide level you know the discourse itself i mean i find when i read a lot of environmentalist articles and books that i myself feel depressed You know, not in a clinical sense, but just feel really because there's no it's just there's no redemption. It's just a kind of piling on of the sins of humanity and a feeling of guilt and all of the kind of classic parts of it. But I think what it's missing, and this is where I think some of the work that we have to do is it's missing any kind of redemption or uplift. It's missing a kind of heroism that goes beyond just making other people feel bad. You know That's not real heroism. That doesn't lead the tribe anywhere. And I think that's some of the cultural work that needs to take place, not only if we're going to sort of heal ourselves at a time of declining belief in God, but also if we're going to actually solve some of these environmental problems, many of which are quite real and worthy of addressing.
1: Okay, Michael. Well, on that somber note, um, uh, thank you very much indeed for talking to Quillette. And um, please do finish that piece.
2: It sounds fascinating. Yeah, thanks for yeah, thanks for reaching out. It's great talking to you guys.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you'll find more content.